This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 10. David Billings, One Person's Anti-Racism Journey. Author David Billings discusses his book, Deep Denial, The Persistence of White Supremacy, and his very personal 50-year battle with racism. So this is an honor. Thank you. This is truly an honor. My mother told me that I needed to always stand in my truth and I needed to speak the truth. And I've found, frankly, since I've gotten older, that's a rather difficult thing to do. Because I've found there's so many truths. And some of them seem to contradict one another. So I have learned to love those occasions to practice mother's dictate with some degree of integrity, and tonight I have one. For tonight, I have one of those rare opportunities to introduce a truth teller. A great teacher in my life, a great leader in the movement, and a holder of many truths, the Reverend Dr. David Billings. You know, Leonard Picks, I'm so very fond of Leonard Pitts, perhaps you are too. He speaks of the very perilous times in which we live and what he calls bizarre untruths infesting our national discourse. Mr. Pitts calls it a sin we can ill afford, and indeed it is. We need truth tellers. Those who in such troubled times stand and tell the truth. We need those who can find in all the contradictions and all those bizarre untruths the moral stand. So tonight comes to Greensboro one who seeks truth and holds contradictions, one who acknowledges and indeed documents white supremacy as he posits. It profoundly shapes our laws as well as our collective psyche. He is a historian. He is an organizer. He is a trainer, an ordained United Methodist minister, a scholar, a man of letters, a presence extraordinaire in the movement for social justice. And he comes from the most unlikely of backgrounds. He was born in Macomb, Mississippi, and he knew that his father and his uncles rubbed shoulders with the Klan. But as he states, he somehow did not succumb to the racial hatred around him, but instead joined the nationwide fight against racism. He is currently leading workshops and organizing with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. He has indeed touched thousands of lives, many of us in this room among them. We are honored to have him here. And just as no one had to remind Dr. King to speak the truth, just as no one had to remind Ann Braden to speak the truth, or Howard Zinn, or W.E.B. Du Bois, or Lillian Smith, I would add, for I count him in their numbers, no one had to remind David Billings. Welcome him to Greensboro.
I have this regal looking chair here, courtesy of the minister. And, uh, but it's because I've had knee surgery recently and when I stand up too long, uh, I start losing my, uh, my grip on the, on the thing. Uh, I wanna thank you for coming here. I am in awe of the number of you that are here. I was, I used to serve churches and they could have fit in about two rows, you know. In fact, I used to stand out on the uh, steps of the church hoping I could lure people in, you know, by standing there. Every now and then I would uh, see somebody or some group that looked like they were heading my way. Uh, usually they would keep on walking, you know. So it is nice uh, to be here. And thank you so much, Suzanne, for that very kind and overly kind, uh, I would think, uh, introduction. But uh, I am honored. Yeah. This country, we live in perilous times, but we've always lived in perilous times particularly those who have survived this nation's race construct, as we call it, uh, the racism that not only is embedded in institutions, I mean individuals, but in all the institutions of society. Uh, and yet most of us do not know the history of that. Thus, we get all exercised when someone mentions it. Uh, but it is very important. If we are to be the society that some of you uh, dream about and aim for and hope that your grandchildren can live in, uh, it's very important that we learn this nation's connection to racism. Uh, we are a nation in denial, at least the white people of the nation, thus the book. Uh, I was very determined to use my own self as an example of what I'm talking about. And that even as I've done anti-racist work for many years, I still internalize the racial superiority uh, that not only I grew up in, but continue to live out. Some people, I lived in New York City a few years ago and for about six years. And people would speak of racism as if it were a product of the South. And I'd say, man, y'all in New York, you got your own problems, you know? <laughs> I said, you know, and I worked up there, but I had to um, understand, why would people say that? You know, racism was a national phenomenon. Um, it, it took on a particular apartheid-like uh, uh, structure in the South. There's no place in this country still today that you can go that there isn't tension 
around uh, racism and our role in it. My brother-in-law in New Orleans, he was very encouraging of the book. He said, but if you're going to write it, you got to tell the truth. Use yourself. Don't make it sound like you're writing about someone else. And I thought about that. This is my attempt at it. There's some things in the book that I'm not proud of. But in order to tell the truth, I had to own it. This is how I did it. I took each decade of my life, in my case, born 1946, and I said, now what what were some of the messages that I was receiving in that first decade of my life as a young white man? And what was going on in the nation at the same time. Then I'd take another decade and I would ask myself, what were the messages that you were receiving? Not in order to deny, but to embrace my role in all of this and those around me. So I would tell a story. I'm going to read you a short passage from one of them. And it's the... uh, Uh, And then I would tell the history and the connection, you know, spurred me on. Until I came up with that, I just couldn't write it. I said, man, how do people write books, man? I'm never going to finish this thing, you know? And it was at one time twice as large as it is now. And therein lies the grace of God, I guess, somehow. Yeah. But when I finished it, I felt pretty good about it. I felt like I had been honest, and I felt like um, I uh, had a role in the undoing of racism as it continues in this society. So I wasn't beating myself up, but I was trying to take a good look at myself. The first time I went north of Memphis, Tennessee, was in the spring of 1965. I was 19 years old. I flew to New York City to be interviewed for a summer internship with Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church. The church was in the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn, And again, it was my friend Nib Stroop, and I speak of him throughout the book, who arranged the interview. I was somewhat nervous, but mostly I was excited about the prospect of living in New York and being a part of this church's outreach program to the youth in Fort Greene. The youth were all black. The church was all white. Segregated churches were nothing new to me. But reaching out to the black community definitely was new. In my experiences in the South, the races, especially black and white people, rarely mingled 
much less worked or played together. The summer staff at Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church was comprised of at least one young person from each state where possible. Nibs and I were from Arkansas. The other kids were from all over the U.S. I was intimidated by the prospect of working with young people from the North. To me, anyone not from the South was from the North. <laughs> I was in another world, and I liked it. I was assigned to Fort Green Park, about three blocks from the church. I was given a baseball, a bat, and a glove, and was told to go for it, or something like that. Later, I would call that experience my first taste of community organizing. I went to the park, sat on a bench with my ball and bat, and let young people come to me. And they did. For most of the summer, I had 50 or so kids, aged 12 to 15, and it became not work for all, at all for me, but playing ball just as I did back home. I learned a lot that summer. Some of the older kids would point out youth who were part of gangs and explain to me why this was true. I remember an, one older girl telling me that gangs were becoming passe. When I asked why, she said, because of continental clothes. They, they were all the rage, and teenagers did not want to mess their clothes up. Who knows if this was true, but I never forgot her telling me this. The kids were not much younger than me. They were, however, much more sophisticated. They were urban, where I was from a small town. Many, I learned, had never been outside of Brooklyn. I noticed that I was freer to move around than they were. I was nervous, but never scared or intimidated. I had been taught to be afraid of black people, who looked you in the eye and were not subservient to whites. My fears were unfounded, and another myth of white supremacy was proved false. My Aunt Peggy called upon a Presbyterian magazine editor with whom she was friendly to write an article about me. She did. For the first time, I was recognized and put on the cover. I was named and singled out. The other kids in the park were not. No surprise there, looking back. I enjoyed tremendously Bible study, which happened each morning before we were sent out to our assignments. I had never heard the Bible taught as the Reverend George Knight taught it. He called it exegesis, a term with which I was not familiar. It had to do with unpacking the Christian scriptures and reading them within the cultural context in which they were written. 
I ate it up. I couldn't wait for Bible study. I don't know if other kids liked it as much as I did, but like it I did and I assume Nibs did. Bible study is something I grew up with, but I had never heard the Bible taught from a social justice perspective. For me, it was always used to justify segregation. I loved this new approach, and so I would for the rest of my life. That first summer in Brooklyn was so transforming for me, I went back the summer of 1966, as LAPC, as we called the church, I saw for the first time blacks and whites working together. My outlook on the world was changing. I owed it to Nibs, George Knight, and New York City. This book, it was the one thing that never was changed during all the editing and throwing out a couple hundred pages and that sort of thing, was the title. Deep Denial. For me, Deep Denial is a plague that haunts this nation, that represents this nation, particularly its white people, and our consistent refusal to own what racism and white supremacy is. A lot of us, if asked, are you against racism? Most of us white folks, not everybody, but most of us would say, yes, I'm against it. And that would be the last of it. We'd never do anything about it. We wouldn't organize about it. We wouldn't speak out in our churches. We didn't bring it into the workplace. We just said we were against it. And that is how white supremacy maintains itself. It's not just the haters, as we are led to believe, the Ku Klux Klan or skinheads or all these other folks. We point the finger at them, but really we should understand ourselves. The denial is the way in which we allow Racism to be continued without ever understanding how we do that. Most of us have never studied the construct of race in this nation. We don't know or have forgotten or were never taught that racism was embedded in the very formation of the nation. One of the greatest fears of those founders, who were not just white men, but more accurately, white people, because it wasn't just the men who benefited from this arrangement. It was the family. It was the children. It was even the grandchildren indoctrinated through this construction of race. 
internalized racial superiority was my big thing. I didn't invent the term, it was taught to me. As people of color were struggling, understanding what messages did they receive that were meant to have them internalize inferiority, it was meant for people like me to internalize a sense of superiority. Internalize superiority. For someone like me, now 70 years old, and who's been working in one form or another against racism for 50 years, I tell a story in this book about my Uncle Harry, who was murdered in Macomb by a young black man in January 1962. The Klan had come to the house. They didn't wear sheets. They didn't have to hide. We knew them by name. My father and his now six brothers, Harry being dead, were in a circle talking to them. And they said, and they asked of the group, what would you have us do? And they got to my Uncle James. James was a war veteran. He had seen death up close. He had been wounded, he had a purple heart. He said, we don't want you to do nothing. We're not that kind of family. It was from that moment, in terms of my own memory, that I began to try to understand racism and white superiority. And even more so, I wanted to understand other white people. How did we become white? What was that process? Why was it? Why couldn't we just remain secure in our ethnic identifications? But in the South that Mississippi represented, ethnicity was something never taught. All I knew is I was white, and I had always been white, and didn't even know that there was a history attached to it. So this book is about an explanation. It is one that I hope paints a way for others to understand structural racism. Racism is not primarily individual acts of meanness. You know, hopefully very few of us now engage in such. But there is a structure in this society, a culture in the society that was created in order to maintain a certain arrangement. And that's what I wanted to explore. How was it maintained? Why was it maintained? Given all of our 
protestations to the contrary, why did all of us who were white internalize a superior place in the society? This is not something that's gone away. Current events say it's still a part of the warp and woof of this nation. But I had never been taught that. And it was years before I was taught a history that helped explain to me how did I become white and what was the purpose of that designation. In classrooms, in churches, and in a lot of different ways, I think that we can study this, that we can study whiteness. How did it happen? Why did it happen? And what are the outcomes in the society as a result? Most of us who are white, not everybody, we weren't taught any of that. So we maintain that racism must somehow be laid at people of color's doorstep. But I knew better. I knew better. Some of you know better. You know? This was something that was taught. It was preyed upon. It was uh, defended by everyone from newspaper folk to preachers. There's a story in here about Youth Day at my home church in Arkansas. They had moved from Mississippi. And I was the Youth Day preacher. They didn't have any other volunteers. So I said, I'd do it. And I did. And my title of the sermon was, How Come God's Children can't worship together. How is the Bible used to defend segregation? I preached. I thought it was a good one. <laughs> but my preacher invited me out the next Sunday. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You even bring it up you get slapped. And that's continued on through this society. Your story could be different, but it requires a vulnerability and an honesty that is hard. There are things in this book that I am not proud of, that I've spent a lifetime running away from. But my brother-in-law, as I mentioned, has said, tell the truth. Make yourself vulnerable. Don't deny. Don't excuse yourself. Don't say, I didn't do that. I didn't think that way. That's not me they're talking about. 
I realized it was. It was me that was being talked about. So deep denial is one person's attempt to speak to this nation from the perspective of white people, a white man, as one of my friends and mentors said. And yes, that is the purpose of it. If it is something that we're going to eventually rid this society of, we have got to ask the hard questions, not of others, but of ourselves. We've got to ask the hard question and not allow any of us who are white to say, I didn't think that way. Yes, you did. You could not have thought that. It was all over us. The denial was hammered home in every institutional formation that we lived our life. And it doesn't do any good for us to deny it. That's where I'm coming from. 70 years of life, 50 years of working against racism, but all 70 of those years a product of white supremacy. That's what the book's about. I hope you buy it. <laughs> That's the whole idea of reading one. It's just hoping that some teacher will think enough of it to say, we're all gonna read this together and not get a, uh, uh. Every page? Yeah, every page. <laughs> I want to engage in a little discussion about this and see what you think. And I'll try to have a response. Not that my response is necessarily the correct one, but it is heartfelt. I don't think we can heal as a nation until white people own their role in it. And trying to point to angry black people or native peoples, to Latinos, Mexicans coming back home, is outlawed. The meeting should be about those of us who are white. And a little bell should go off when we try to change the subject because our healing, as some people like to say, is wrought up in our ability to change this country. Without it, your great-grandchildren will grow up in the same arrangement that I did. Maybe not as blatant, but today 
the internal dynamics of who gets to live and who dies at what age and why, we are not taught. We're not taught about criminal justice except to say that if they're in the prison, they must have done something to deserve it. No, not necessarily. A lot of us do something. We just don't pay the same price. What you think? What you think? You got a response or a question or a statement in light of this? Yes, ma'am. I was raised in New York. And a lot of people say, oh, that doesn't happen in New York. That's from the South. But I'm going to tell you, it was a hidden aspect that they didn't live on your block, but nobody talked about it. So I can say, as a white person, that I was well aware of it and brought up in New York. There you go. You know, racism is not just confined to one part of this country. Anybody else? Yes? I think I can speak loud enough to be heard. Uh, I appreciate your protecting the title of the book, and this is an unpaid, non-political announcement. But we have read half of it, and it is terrific. Um, I can't wait to read the rest. My question is about the subtitle, The Persistence of White Supremacy in, the, in United States History and Life. And I embrace that. That is what we're talking about. But, but I wonder about the decision to put that on the cover of the book. Because there are people who need to get in here and learn about white supremacy who might be off-put by being called a white supremacist on the cover. <laughs> Can you talk about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the whole intent is to say this term, when it only pertains to those who hate or those who uh, do violence in the name of race, are letting us off the hook. They have been punished for the sins of the whole nation, the white people in this nation. I don't... And that's why I kept the subtitle, um, because I wanted to say that white supremacy is not just something that happened in history, but the advantages that go along with being white in this country are greater today than they were 50 years ago, how can you say such a thing? Because 
Our wealth is greater. Our institutions mirror us. People of color have to fight their way in. I've thought maybe Dina Hayes or Monica Walker taught me this. But I used to tell people, people of color, when I was in New York and elsewhere, I said, how many of you got an advanced degree who are people of color? And a good number would raise their hand. I said, you ought to get two degrees. And they'd say, two? I said, yeah. You've got to master the subject area that gave you one degree. And you have to learn white culture in order to survive. Those of us who are white, we only had to do one of them. Master the subject area. We didn't have to understand white culture. In fact, many of us deny such a thing exists. It's this kind of thing. Can we work as whites? Because the doing of racism was in our name as whites, and the undoing of it is going to require us to be honest about what it was. You can think of things like this. Why are white people the only people in this country that are thought of as individuals? When people of color are always dealt with as a group. Now you put us in the same church together, as rare as that is, or on the same staff, it's hard to work. When I'm functioning as an individual and you're living with the collective experience of being black in America. Y'all know about Black Lives Matter here in Greensboro, don't you? I knew you did. Did you see how quickly the subject was changed? That the message was diluted? Don't all lives matter? And I like to say, were you thinking that yesterday? Or just when you saw that someone put up that black lives matter? Now even Verizon matters. <laughs> so we're never going to get out of this. You know? As another ex-New Yorker, I just want to say I'd lived in New York for decades before I found out that slaves built the wall that, after which Wall Street was named. But I wanted to ask you if you could maybe point to one of the examples like the GI Bill or maybe the more recent mortgage crisis and how that worked out to the advantage of white folks almost exclusively and the disadvantage of black folks in the case of the more recent mortgage crisis. Some of you will enjoy reading Professor Ira Katznelson, one word, latest uh, book. It was on white affirmative action. And he speaks to how that 
was put in place and maintained. And he speaks to just what you were saying, that during the New Deal, as we call it, some might call it the raw deal. <laughs> I, my parents, whom I love, my grandfather, whom I also loved, he bought an Eleanor Roosevelt homestead house in southwestern Mississippi in the 1940s. And I thought, isn't this a way back, a hit back? Because we didn't like Eleanor Roosevelt at all. <laughs> and yet here was the little community that was named in her honor. But the New Deal would never have passed the Congress were it not for the Southern senators, all white, coming to an agreement with Franklin Roosevelt that if we vote for your New Deal and all the other legislation, that he would keep quiet about the racial segregation and racism in the South. It was a bargain. It said, if you want our votes, you can't use that as a way of sneaking in integration through the back door. He didn't do it. There's two basic groups that were excluded. You've done your own history. And that was that if you were a domestic worker, you weren't included. If you were a migrant farm worker, you weren't included. You were left out. We'd be a different nation had the wealth of those who had been the products of the race construct been included in the New Deal. But I didn't know any of that. But it was the stepping stone for us to move from low wages to lower middle class. Because our house was built in 1937. I think it was $2,000, which was a lot back then, I was often told. A 30-year note that was guaranteed at 2% and a longevity of 30 years. But nobody ever gave us nothing. <laughs> Even as a 10-year-old, I thought, something wrong with that. There's a story I tell in the book. My uncles would be sitting in the living room, and I'd hear one of them say, well, a good white man, they're talking about boxing, will always beat a colored man. And I sat there thinking, seems to me like there's always some colored man whipping some white man's 
behind. <laughs> but this was the mythology that I heard, I internalized, and while I might not agree with those facts, I knew what was behind them, you know? Anybody else? Yes, sir. and the other year does work for me, but uh, about really understanding ourselves in the context of the culture and the, our story, the history, patriarchal word. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, in the past I've done social work, and that's to me, that's like the height of liberation, right? And I was complaining about um, oppos uh, opposition to fire disorder several times. One of those times, uh, Dana Hayes was around in the ear. I was, I was fetching around that to her, and she said, it sounds like drapidomania. So when you start unpacking these things, uh, when you just look at holistically. So I want to acknowledge, apologize, I could go on, I won't do it in this moment, but I want to invite, you know, other opportunities. I think also it's so entrenched that the capitalist system, to me, the money system, which, which, like, my survival depends on this money system, but it's really, it's tied when this person over here, because the, their, their uh, behavior is, is uh, criminalized or pathologized and all this stuff, about people making decisions about our own lives. So I think that's, that's a significant part. So I think really unpacking, looking at ourselves in the context is, is like you're right, it's not about judging or blaming or attacking but, or excusing, but it's about really understanding ourselves in the context of, okay, what, you know, what have I done? What have we done? Where, where are we? So uh, I think really we need, the restorative justice is a big piece of it. And, and, and um, so I appreciate what, what, you're, uh, what you're saying. Oh, also, because when we don't understand it, I think we do new versions of the same thing. So for me, like the word minority is just another word for three-fifths of a person or the N-word, right? Uh, so uh, anyway, so I, I appreciate, what, you know, appreciate that, that perspective. Thank you. Dina Hayes, is that who you said? I got you. More to it, yeah. And, and I think that if white people, if we can just quit being so defensive when someone brings up not just race, but our role in it, then that'd take us a long way because at least then we'd have to know what we had to read, what we had to study. Some of us just have an opinion about racism. We haven't studied it, you know? We haven't researched it. Anyone that challenges our opinion, you know, we, we isolate them often run them off, but the idea of study, can you imagine what this country would be if we didn't have researchers out there on these uh, dread disease that we might, within our lifetimes, begin to conquer? Can you imagine the potential of this nation if all of us, not just work together, we need to study together. We need to research. We need to be scholars on this. And if I have one suggestion for the group, for the small group, 
Why, folks? Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Can you listen without trying to defend yourself? That's going to take you a long, a long way. But it's a very hard thing for white folks to do because we are in deep denial. Hey. I'm a bit nervous right now, so y'all forgive me. But this is a conversation, and uh, this is a good conversation, and that's where everything needs to start with conversation. Um, my name is Nama Finley. Um, 34 years old. I'm originally from Africa, Liberia. Um, I grew up in the Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. area on the Virginia side. And um, I came to America when I was seven, in 1990. And uh, I experienced racism when I first came to America, and I thought it was strange. And the first time I heard the N-word, excuse me for saying it, but the first time I heard the word nigger, was from a kid that was my age. And um, of course I knew it was, you know, it was ignorance, but I looked at the kid and said, uh, what is your purpose of saying that to me? He didn't really have a response other than you're a nigga. But he said this when a bunch of us was, you know, playing football you know, in the streets. And uh, I looked at him like, so if you don't have no purpose of saying this to me, then really, you know, there's something wrong with you. So I told, you know, it was other white kids amongst us, and I told my peers, like, this kid is, you know, calling me a nigga, you know, whatever the case may be. And uh, we kind of stopped playing with him. And he felt, you know, kind of, I guess, embarrassed or out of place, because now you got a group of other kids that's playing, and you standing right there by yourself. And uh, once again, I'm still nervous, so I might be rambling. but. I say that by saying, um, you know, it's sad that it's 2017 and we're still talking about racism. Um, but for me, the solution for that is, it's a bunch of us in here. We're all leaders, whether you believe it or not. And I think the way to debt racism is, I guarantee you, each and every one of us in this room has or had a friend who had that racist mentality. And the way we can debt that is, instead of allowing them to continue that mentality is, you have to check that person. Because if you don't say nothing to that person, they're going to continue with that mentality, and then they themselves have friends that they're going to pass that along. So being that we're all leaders, you have to be able to stop it right then and there before it's spread. I've always felt like racism was taught that it took one person to say, I don't like this individual, and they passed that mentality along. And you said it earlier about edu you know, educating. That whomsoever that they passed that along didn't educate themselves and went along with it, then they themselves passed it along. Mm -hmm. And um, so like I said, it's 2017 and we're still talking about racism, but I think we can debt that by all, you know, by all of us being leaders, you know, you know how when you're in the airport or uh, somewhere and they say, stop, if you see something, say something. <laughs> and I think that's what we need to do. Thank you. Yeah.
Yeah. I came here because uh, I am interested in what you, you know, wrote. I am an aspiring author, and I wrote a book called Positive Purpose. All right. And, uh, All right. Yeah, thank you. I'm a fan. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, I did not grow up in New York. <coughs> I grew up. <laughs> I grew up in uh, North Carolina, and I spent two years in a town called Oxford. Um, and there was a there was a a billboard at the county line that said, "The Ku Klux Klan welcomes you to Granville County." And I moved there at uh, in the third grade, and I immediately made friends with a black kid in my class. And because we hadn't gotten the memo, right? He, he and I hadn't gotten the memo yet. And, and um, at, at the end of the school year, my, uh, my teacher, who was uh, an African-American woman, kept us after school, and she, in tears, told us what a privilege it had been to teach us that year. And we had no clue what she meant, right? Um, but the next year, um, I approached this kid again and and he was very cold to me and and then you know I my friends influenced me tried to influence me and and uh, and so it was taught but the interesting thing is that you know I don't think our parents taught us that I think it was our our peers who taught us that and I think the 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 culture teaches us that more than anything it's mm -hmm. not just you know, our families, it's, uh, and, and I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I lived in, in D.C. for a while when I was uh, a young man, and there was a, there was a school um, in the building that I, I uh, worked at, and, and that school, uh, by the way, taught mostly black, young black people how to be nurses' assistants and electronics technicians, and they charged the equivalent of a Harvard education to do this, right? But, but I would walk among all of these black, young black people. And for the first time in my life, I got, I got, I got two, two lessons from that. I learned in a very tiny way what it was like to be a minority because I would walk through all these kids. And I also learned that I'm a racist because I looked at those folks as being different than myself. Thank you. Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. Hey. Um, my name is Zachary Tanner. First, I want to thank you, Reverend Billings, for giving this viewpoint from the clerical um, perspective. Because as I've grown up, I'm only 23, but I actually never thought that Caucasian churches actually talked about racism. And <laughs> The reason why is because the quote is said that on Sunday afternoon, it's the most segregated time in this country. But then I look at it that white churches are in white neighborhoods and black churches are usually in black neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods are segregated 24 seven. White people have the ability to choose to go to a black neighborhood whenever they want, but black people don't have the same option. Um, I read a book, Dismantling Racism by Joseph Brandt. And I think he stated, racism is a white problem and the world won't be healed until white people are healed from their racism. So I'm actually overjoyed to have this uh, multicultural um, dialogue and discussion because we all need to get into a room and actually be comfortable and vulnerable with speaking about 
this true ism that is going on in our community. Um, and I just want to know, what's your viewpoint on how we heal um, the schism between the churches and denominations and races? Thank you. Well, I think they're separated for very different reasons. Historically, in my opinion and others, the black, one, whites were never barred from the black church. They could go if they wanted to. But black people needed some aspect of their lives where they weren't white people. You know, we, we were just overwhelming. Now, white people, our churches were segregated by intent. You know, that if a black person uh, came, you know, for, for years they weren't allowed to come in, were told to turn around. So it's different, it's different uh, histories there, but I know what you're saying. Uh, and we still are trying to get there as a nation. You say in your book that um, community organizing is absolutely crucial to creating a more equitable society and really addressing racism. I would just like to hear you talk more about that. Why do you say it is so crucial? Yeah, and there are people here who can talk better than me about this, but what, what we mean by that, and, and some elders, some colleagues would help me understand what was meant by that, but that this nation changes when people organize, when power, if you will, is challenged by a collective. That's how the nation, if you look back, now organizing, you, you, don't, you don't hear about it a lot, um, but it is, in fact, the way in which this country changed during that period of time called the Civil Rights Movement. You know, if you had to put it to a vote, uh, white people would have voted that down, you know? So they didn't put it to a vote. But it was the organizing of constituency. You're, somebody organized y'all you know, to be here. That's when the country changes and we need to ensure, if we can, that the organizing demonstrates the best of who we are as a people. You just can't educate it away because only a few of us are in those settings. There'd like to be more. Uh, you can't legislate it away. But you can make an impact when you organize. I think four or five years, um, the Supreme Court got a case that I think started with the college student um, somewhere in the South about um, not being accepted into a school and African-Americans being accepted or 
one or more being accepted in their place. And I remember hearing about this case on National Public Radio and that they um, said that they, she won her case essentially and being shocked to hear uh, NPR often reads the, um, an opinion of one of the judges and they said something to the effect of them saying, well, racism wasn't really active in our country anymore, something that we didn't need that, and I'm probably misquoting terribly, but I know that was the, yeah, but the you're kind right. of gist of what I heard. And I was just so shocked. I thought having an African-American president did not end racism. And um, I just, I'm just still astounded to think that this group of people, the highest court in the land, um, would have that point of view. I just wonder if you have an opinion and if we should all send them a copy of your book. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's... Uh, white people as individuals rarely even come into contact with the kind of discrimination and injustice that people of color are talking about. Um, every now and then, one of us feels that we were treated unjustly. But every aspect of our lives as white people, not that we don't struggle, and not that we don't come from struggle, but compared to others, we got it made, you know? We have advantages that nobody else in this country does. And you'll hear us say, but that's because we worked hard. Just about all of us work hard. Some of us get others to work hard for us. So we don't understand those advantages. And so from the first time we feel that we are being uh, dealt with in a way that's unfairly, we call it reverse racism. There's no such thing. There can be bigots in this country of any color, but racism is reserved, meaning the structure of racism, the benefits of racism, have been reserved for white people. And we need to study that, otherwise we will react to it in a way that is not helpful. There's someone that taught me a lot, a little book called The Anti-Social Contract by Y.L. Cly, K-L-Y. He called it an anti-social contract because he said people of color were not contracted with. That the social contract exists between this nation and white people. And when black people, brown people, others try to access the social contract, they get defeated. They get pushed back. That's because, according to Dr. Cly, 
they were not the people with whom the contract was made, and thus they can't claim it. Now, you might agree with that or not, but it's interesting. Hello, good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Jonathan Moore, and um, you talked a lot about uh, organizing so that way we can move forward. So, um, as a school teacher, how can we address these concerns in the classroom? Uh, being that we teach, we're teaching the next generation, so what are your, your views on that? We, there are a lot of good resources out there that share how good teachers have plans that broach this, this whole thing of, of race, racial uh, dynamics in this society. But it's usually just kind of one over there, one over here. Instead of being something that all who are going to teach get that part of their education. Because so many of us are put into situations as teachers or preachers, uh, social workers, that we don't know how to do it. I was for a while an adjunct at New York University. They asked me to be an adjunct. I said, well, what's that? He says, well, that's sort of a professor. I said, well, how much are you going to pay? And they said, we pay you $1,400 for a semester. I said, man, those are some poor wages. This was New York City. And they asked me again a few years later. This time, I accepted it because I so much wanted one of those cards that said I was a professor at NYU. <laughs> I went home and... But on a more serious note, although that was serious, <laughs> the students in the School of Social Work, I'd have this class that flocked to it. Then it'd be all over the place. And they said, or I asked them, well, why are you all here? Why is it? She says, because we know where we're going to work. It's going to be in a community of color. And yet this school never mentions race. So I asked the other professors, why don't you teach us about racism? And they said, we teach what we were taught. We don't know how to do it. See, there are a lot of resources out there that can help you with that. But yes, the, um, there are, uh, in every institution, I wanted to say that there's no, uh, there's no higher degree in this country, whatever field you might be a part of or interested in, where understanding racism is a core requirement that you can't be a lawyer, doctor, preacher, or any of the other professions because of the uniqueness of race in this country 
without understanding what it is. So we get educated part of the way, and we go, we're sent to communities, and we don't have any idea what to do. That's not their fault. That is the construct of the society, and we've got to change that. Oddly enough, since I'm not really a church-going person anymore, I was really struck by the young man's question about the schism between, that still exists between the white and, uh, and black churches. And I've just been sitting here stewing on that a little bit. And I may say something totally off base, so feel free to call me out. But um, I think, as, as I thought about it, it's all wrapped up in in the cultural identity and and the the reality of how to become white in this country we had to lose our cultural identity i think if we looked back to um the beginnings of churches in this country that probably a lot of the denominations that we have today started out based on a, an ethnic group being scots presbyterians uh I can't, I'm not going to be able to name them all, but I mean, they, they were. And they all, those all kind of melded together into white churches because all of these different groups had to become white, it had to lose their ethnicities and let them go to become white. And so now we're talking about not just the, not a cultural identity. I think whiteness is less of a, it's not really a cultural ethnic identity, it's a political identity. And so there's a, and you know, what, what little experience I have in any black churches or hearing about what it's like or what it feels like or what it does for people of color, there is a sense of community. It's a place to draw strength, to keep your hope, to and, and it's, it's just not something that white people can relate to in that same way as long as we don't have those struggles. It's sort of like we integrated the school system by force, but is it really integration? Because still to this day, people of color, children of color in the school system are taken out of what, for many, is largely still a whole different cultural experience and you're trying to fit you've still got to as as you talked about earlier fit into the white way of doing things to succeed so why would you want to take you know leave the one place <laughs> that you are or one place that you have to go that you can go and really embrace that culture and and people everybody there understands it so why would you want to leave that for what in the largely white experience? We don't, understand, we don't have that. We could learn a lot, but we don't understand it. It's that individualism. We don't have the kind of sense of community as white people as you find. And so until we change that, I don't think we can. I don't think we ever will really break that schism. I think that we can have more cooperation and I think that that's happening. 
but I don't think it's ever going to be truly, you know, integrated as long as that divide outside of it Thank exists. You. One more. I'm running out of steam. Hi, my name is David Parker. Um, I'm worried about my grandchildren and when, when is racism going to end? Uh, can we educate it to end? You know, and the Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal. And that was 240 years ago. And then the end of the Civil War, slavery was ab abolished. And that was, how many years ago was that? That was 150 years ago. And, and it just isn't improving. Um, Brown versus the Board of Education was in 1954. Right. And the school I was going to did not integrate until 1964. That was 10 years after this court, um, court case was judged in favor yeah. of integration. Well, I don't know. How much learning do we have to do? <laughs> A lot. You know, I'm glad you mentioned your grandchildren because people ask, well, when should I start teaching them about all of this. And I say, now, soon as they're born, make this a part. Because if you wait until they're teenagers or something, it's too late, you know? Black people have to have the talk. Y'all know what that is? Yeah. White people don't. But we need to, you know, we need to. Okay. Hi, my name is Christina Young, and I have a question. If you already have a community organized that's multiracial, that's working on health care, and you work with a group that goes from awareness to denial, awareness to denial, what strategies would you suggest to break that cycle and stay in awareness and to permanently face racism? In healthcare, well, y'all, <laughs> you, uh, you know, th that's a good, a good question because we we have a short attention span when it comes to race. Now, black folks are always being reminded, Latinos, Asians, about race even if they want to say, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm not doing any of this. But the culture beats down on you. It's not something you can run away from. One of the advantages of white is the freedom that most of us feel to not have this, uh, what do they call it? Courageous conversations as a starting point. Can't be an end point. But I think you have to get, uh, it has to, you have to find a way to have that built into your uh, training or, or whatever it is from the beginning. 
You know, they need to know this is what has gone on. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a form of denial that's very uh, rooted in the fact that in this country, white people don't need, you know, we feel, I, I, don't, I don't need this, and it's an option for me. It's really not, but that's what we think, you know, and it's not something that we can run away from, and we have to be as creative as we are in other aspects of our life to find a way to do this that doesn't seep into the denial syndrome. Uh, or you can buy a book on it and then just... Um, <laughs> Dave, thanks for letting me do the last question. I do have a group of teachers here tonight that are part of our, our school system and I'm just reminded in the last thing you said that uh, there's probably nothing more segregated than public education is right now in this country. And uh, we have teachers that are training to supposedly address an achievement gap. More often than not, the teachers that enter our public education system are often sent first to the most uh, highly impoverished schools to address issues that have been exacerbated by race. So I'm just wondering if you could just say something in closing about the, the urgency of also this issue of race as it relates to the achievement gap in education in this country. Yeah, it's amazing. Every, every field of endeavor does that. If you're a preacher, you're sent to the, the hardest nut first, you know, and you don't have a clue for the most part as to how to approach it. Um, a lot of our institutions those who have internships and things like that are sent to the most impoverished or racially segregated um, aspects. But when they graduate, that's not where they're going to go. You know? So we just have to continue to work on uh, efforts to bring this country together that really help us understand race and racism beyond the personal level, you know? It's, it's personal and yet it's not, you know? Uh, and it has to be taught from an understanding of the nation's history and in the context of how is our uh, profession, be it teaching or whatever, going to uh, approach this. You know, it needs to be a part of our educational training. And, you know, in Greensboro, you have some of the best doing this, you know, and you need to take advantage uh, of these efforts that are going on. Is that enough? Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. 
Um, I have two or three quick announcements. First, another big thank you. You may have noticed behind you and over here that this has been filmed. Eric Preston with few Eric Preston with Fusion Films has been filming. There is a basket available for contributions, donations for his work. All of the series is going to be available on the Fusion Film website. The previous year's series, which are different from this year's, are already available, and so are a lot of other fine films, and I'd just like to say that Fusion Films is the official filmmaker for Reverend Barber and the Moral Majority. The Moral Monday, <laughs> yeah. which I wanted to be the Moral Majority. <laughs> yeah, yeah.